As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. For a person with a severe mental illness, their family is often a very important part of the care and support that they require. And paradoxically, that also places them at increased risk of being the victims of violence. Have you ever wondered what happens in a secure forensic mental health hospital? I certainly have. 
We see the headlines when someone is arrested and charged for murder, assault or rape, and sometimes it's decided that they are unfit to stand trial. What does this mean when someone has a defensive mental impairment? How will they face the consequences of what they've done? These are questions I have, and I'm sure others do too. In this episode, Dr. Danny Sullivan, a psychiatrist and the Executive Director of Clinical Services at Forensicare, joins Australian True Crime to talk about what happens at Thomas Embling Hospital, a forensic mental health facility in Melbourne, and how people end up there. Well, I trained as a psychiatrist in Melbourne. Uh, I work for Forensicare, which is also known as the Victorian Institute of Forensic Mental Health, and that's a, a statewide state-run authority which provides mental health services to prisons and the justice system. So we have three, uh, three domains. One of them is a secure hospital, currently 136 beds, but soon funded by the state government to expand. Uh, we provide outpatient clinics and some uh, bed-based units in a number of prisons. And finally, we have a community service which runs a, a range of different programs which address the needs of people who are living in the community or also provides reports for other agencies like the courts or the parole board. And what is Thomas Embling Hospital and who was Thomas Embling? Well, Thomas Embling was a great man. He trained as a, uh, as a doctor in England. He migrated to Australia and he was uh, the resident medical officer at the Yarra Bend Asylum. So Yarra Bend National Park is in Kew. Um, it's always been the case that asylums are located in places where there's uh, some leafy green surroundings that was always thought to be healthy for people to live in that sort of environment. Uh, and in fact, we probably get the, the phrase going around the bend from being sent to Yarra Bend Asylum. Uh, there's still a, a pillar from that asylum located in the National Park. But Thomas Embling was, um, he was a troublemaker. He saw that the conditions were dire. He saw that people were being maltreated. Uh, so he was a whistleblower. There was a large inquiry, all the staff were sacked and uh, the government of the time noted that it was a disgrace that the conditions were uh, people were being kept in. Subsequently, he became a member of parliament for Collingwood and he lived until uh, around the 1890s. Unlike many uh, men of that era, he had fabulous facial hair. He had huge mutton chop sideburns. So the hospital was named after him because of his um, focus on human rights and his reforming uh, history. He sounds like he would have been a real trailblazer back in that day because I imagine there probably wasn't that much um, acknowledgement of the human rights of people with mental health conditions. No. Uh, up until the 19th century, particularly in England and other places, the, uh, the common uh, hobby of the uh, well-to-do on weekends was to pay an admission fee and go and look at caged people in mental health asylums. Uh, so it was certainly inhumane and uh, attitudes have improved, but there are still negative attitudes and stigma, which, you know, something we'd probably like to talk about in this podcast. The, um, the other thing to point out is that Thomas Embling Hospital was developed in the late 1990s. It opened in 1999. Uh, before that, people were uh, accommodated at a part of Mont Park Psychiatric Hospital uh, around Bandura. In addition to uh, a unit at Mont Park Psychiatric Hospital in Bandura, there was J Ward for the Criminally Insane, which still exists in Ararat, and you can take a tour of that facility. Uh, it, it's pretty primitive and barbaric. Uh, it's a long way from Melbourne, and uh, up to 30 or 40 people were, were kept there at any given time into the 1990s. And at that stage, people were detained not by the courts but by the government. So they were, they were detained at the governor's pleasure. And what that meant was that it relied upon politicians to make a decision about whether to release someone. 
Now those decisions are made by the court, which of course is independent. And because judges are not so uh, reliant upon public favour or being re-elected, they can make a fair and unbiased decision. Whereas you can see that a politician would struggle to make what could be a politically unpopular decision. So many people were detained for uh, excessive periods of time, despite the fact that they probably didn't pose a significant risk. And what that also meant, of course, was that strategically, a lawyer would be far less likely to seek a mental impairment defence or an insanity defence because they would see that their client might be detained forever when the offending might be relatively minor compared to some others. Things have um, thankfully come on a, lot, a long way from that. Um, so how does a person end up at a secure psychiatric facility like Thomas Embling? Can you talk me through the different categories of admission, Danny? Yes, absolutely. So we have three different categories of admission. Uh, two of those are under the Mental Health Act, and one is under a piece of legislation called the Crimes, Mental Impairment and Unfitness to be Tried Act. So under the Mental Health Act, uh, as in the rest of the state, if a person has a severe mental illness, uh, lacks insight and poses a risk to themselves or others, they can be admitted compulsorily. Uh, the, the people who come to Thomas Embling Hospital are distinguished from those who go to area mental health services, usually by the fact that they have very challenging behaviour which can't be managed in a standard unit, and it requires the specialist input of a forensic mental health team. So that's people who are, I suppose, specifically skilled in managing aggression and other challenging behaviours. The second group of people are security patients. Um, so basically, the catchment area for our service is the prison estate. So anyone who is in a prison who becomes mentally unwell or is mentally unwell um, and is not improving can be transferred for compulsory treatment to Thomas Embling Hospital. You can't be treated involuntarily in prison. It's already a, um, a place of detention, but you wouldn't want to be treated just as you wouldn't want to be treated for a heart attack or for um, cancer by uh, in prison, you'd like to uh, think that your mental health problems are treated in a proper mental health facility. And then the final group of people uh, are forensic patients. And so those are people who have two potential findings from the court. One of those is that at the time they committed the offence, they were mentally impaired. That is, mental illness had so affected their uh, the way that they thought that they couldn't really reason sensibly about what they were doing, usually because of delusions, but sometimes also because of uh, cognitive impairments such as dementia or intellectual disability. And the second group who are forensic patients are those who are found unfit to be tried. And that means that at the time of the court case, they really can't participate meaning meaningfully. They can't follow what's going on. They can't brief their lawyers appropriately. There's a range of reasons why a person might be found unfit to be tried, but the outcome is the same as for mental impairment. They're, they're placed on a custodial supervision order under that act and they come to Thomas Ambling Hospital. So obviously we're talking for a true crime podcast and we do cover, um, you know, issues that affect the, the justice system, um, society, but I want to focus on people who have committed the crime, so the forensic patients. Sure. Well, we'll think about the, the journey. So um, an offence occurs, the accused person is remanded in custody, they go, to, they go to prison and then they get a lawyer and their lawyer makes a determination. At some stage, they figure that their client may have a mental illness or a reason um, that, that a mental impairment defence might be available, or they find that their client is so incredibly difficult to take instructions from that they form the view that they may be unfit to be tried. So the defence lawyer then can raise that issue with the court. The prosecution can also raise that issue if they have concerns, particularly when they review the brief of evidence and they think about what's occurred. If there are some 
unusual features to the offence or if it's very clear that the person who is charged has a very significant mental health history, which may not become apparent until they're charged, then that comes up in the prosecution's mind. And of course, the judge always has the power to order those reports as well. And typically, there are two reports minimum, uh, one from the defence and one from the prosecution. And they come from a small pool of people who are forensic psychiatrists and forensic psychologists. And those reports then go before the court. If the reports are in agreement uh, and the prosecution, which of course acts on behalf of victims and families of uh, people who have suffered crimes, if the prosecution accepts that, then there'll be a finding made by the court. But if the prosecution wishes to contest that, uh, and they, you know, they certainly cast a stern eye over these cases and they're, they're very reluctant to accept something unless they're very satisfied that that is the case, then it will go to a contest in court. And that usually means that the expert witnesses, the psychiatrists and psychologists are called and either a judge or in some cases a jury makes the decision. So really that means that it's, it's exposed to um, the adversarial process in criminal law it's exposed to the scrutiny of the Office of Public Prosecutions acting on behalf of victims and families and making sure that you know justice is done. And there's an independent decision maker who has no vested interest in the outcome, the judge or the jury. So what would you say to people who have the perception that it's some sort of cop-out or a softer punishment for someone who's committed a violent crime to be sent to a facility like Thomas Embling rather than jail? Because, you know, when there's a crime that outrages the public and obviously the offender is very unwell and goes to Thomas Embling, it, it can raise the ire of the community. Absolutely. And that's that's very understandable, uh, particularly because mentally disordered homicides are perhaps more likely to affect either carers or family members, or in some cases, perhaps are more likely than non-mentally disordered homicides to affect strangers. So when you have a, a spectacular crime which has a high profile in the media. Um, of course, it arouses people's anxieties that, uh, that you know, there are crazed killers wandering the streets. The media in the past has certainly used language which has been inflammatory and stigmatising, so that's, that's relevant. Uh, it's a strategic choice in many cases made by the defence, so they have to toss up whether they plead guilty and recognise that mental illness might be taken in mitigation, that is, it might reduce the sentence or... Um, be, be taken more leniently versus the potential for an indefinite order. That is an order which uh, which might be shorter than a, than a prison sentence, but might also be longer. So it's a bit of a gamble. I would say that if a person has a lengthy history of mental illness, if they lack insight into that and they continue to cease taking medication, if they have a history of substance use, which is, uh, which is longstanding, or if they have a history of recurrent offending, it's quite likely that a mental impairment defence will be uh, will lead to a longer stay in hospital than they would have if they went to prison. So that's that's one thing which you need to be certain of. And we certainly have numbers of uh, patients in hospital who regret the fact that they took the advice of their lawyers to pursue a mental impairment defence or were found unfit to be tried because uh, had they had a prison sentence, they would have been released much earlier. But we also have patients who have been in hospital since their, uh, their late teens or early 20s and who will stay there until their dying days. Uh, if, if the person does not recover sufficiently to reassure the courts and the community that they can be returned safely to the community, then they will stay there um, for a much longer period of time. The other thing to point out is that uh, there are many purposes of sentencing, um, of which one is punishment and retribution, but 
as well as that the other purposes of sentencing include rehabilitation. Uh, they include deterrence, the idea that um, in casting a sentence, the, the court is making a statement on behalf of the community about what will and won't be tolerated as behaviour. So it's understandable that the family members uh, of, of people who are the victims of crime can feel aggrieved that someone goes to hospital because they don't see it as a, as a punitive option. Our patients, however, will tell you that the, the uh, restrictions of their liberty are actually very significant um, and they're, they're something that they regret and that they, they really don't like. Uh, so similarly, when you go to prison, um, for some people, prison is harsh and cruel, but for others, it's also, um, it's more stable accommodation than they have in the community. Um, it's better nutrition. Um, it's actually got structure and support. So some people, particularly with mental health problems or substance use problems, will actually improve in health and in mental health when they go to a prison simply because they're removed from, you know, what... Uh, what is not necessarily a freedom in the community if you're living in parlous accommodation or if you're homeless, if you're um, struggling with drug addictions and if your peers and colleagues and associates are, uh, are criminals and offenders. I'm thinking of things that I've seen on television and I know not, that's not necessarily reality, but Danny, can you actually fake a mental impairment defence? Like, is it a strategy? Oh, look, it's, it's certainly something that, that people might attempt um, we, we call it malingering. Um, so people will will attempt to um, either report symptoms which are not present or embellish symptoms which, which are present um, in order to, to get over a threshold. Um, having said that, it's actually very difficult to, to fake a mental illness. I, I think I would struggle to do it. Most people who fake mental illness end up really faking intellectual disability or they fake... Um, they fake hallucinations in ways that um, an experienced team observing the people will notice over time does not look like real mental illness. But we certainly, we've had a number of cases where people have, um, have attempted to malinger mental illness in, in order to get a mental impairment. Um, the, the other difficulty, of course, is that when people are uh, affected, intoxicated with substance use at the time, and that's very common in offending, you have to unravel the contributions of substance use, the contributions of mental illness. Um, so it may well be that the person's mental illness was pre-existing, or it may be that the mental illness really is, is a symptom of substance use, and that doesn't get you a mental impairment defence. So it really relies upon um, the expertise of the psychiatrists and psychologists assessing people uh, to be able to provide a cogent case to the court about why it is that this is, for instance, a mental illness-causing behaviour as opposed to intoxication with voluntarily consumed substances. Yeah, it's something controversial, isn't it, when, you know, people are under the influence of substances or alcohol and people think, oh, that's no excuse. But, I mean, it obviously does have to get counted into into the person's case, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and in some cases it's aggravating. So, for instance, if you're treating psychiatrist has warned you that your persisting use of, um, of methamphetamine will worsen your outcome from your mental illness or that if you do not take your medication, um, you will be at risk of aggressive behaviour and you then go ahead and use methamphetamine or you go off your medication, a judge will take that into account and they will take into account that you have um, gone against the good advice of your treating clinicians. Uh, you won't get a discount. If anything, you might even get extra time added onto a sentence. In other situations, um, you know, it's very hard to unravel whether the substance use causes the, the loss of compliance with medication. 
Um, but it's but it's very rare that people get a discount as a result of um, actions which occur because they're intoxicated. In some cases, it provides um, an understanding of why something happened, but it doesn't provide an excuse. So we know that there's a stigma around mental illness, but that conversation is changing. So what are the challenges for you and your colleagues who work in forensic um, mental health um, and the people that you take care of around the stigma from the community and the media? You mentioned the inflammatory kind of wording and headlines and reporting. Are some of these perceptions or fears founded? Well, stigma really comes from a fear of difference, and it's been present for a long time, whether whether through sort of moral or religious uh, background, or increasingly, um, just as I say, driven by by media reporting. Our our patients face a dual stigma because there's not just the stigma of mental illness, but also the stigma of having offended, and that that poses unique challenges when returning a person to the community. It can pose challenges in in terms of employment. And we know that employment is a, a stable, uh, protective factor against further offending. Um, it can pose um, obstacles to finding accommodation if, uh, if people get wind of it. And you would have seen this numerous times, particularly with sexual offenders leaving prison, that, um, that vigilante mobs will form, that people's addresses will be published, that, um, that their windows will be broken and their houses graffitied. So, of course, that makes it really difficult for anyone, even if they are reformed or rehabilitated, to return safely to the community. We also know, however, that treatment for mental disorder is really effective in reducing offending in the future. And we've certainly done long-term studies on our populations that show that people who have gone through treatment in a secure hospital and are conditionally released under supervision and with the support of a mental health team are much less likely to offend than people who serve a prison sentence and are returned to the community. So basically, we know it's pretty simple that prison doesn't really work for rehabilitation. In most jurisdictions, more than half of people who go to prison will return, and perhaps that that reflects more upon the uh, lack of investment in the aftercare, in in things like accommodation, employment options, and and support from the community. The um, the other thing we know is that if you wanted to reduce offending, it's not just through effective mental health treatment after the um, after the horse is bolted. You actually want to sort of uh, pick up the foal from an early age and and bring it up the right way. So there's there's very good evidence that, in fact, if you can address some of the um, adverse childhood experiences that people experience, if you can retain them in education, if you can pick people at risk of developing mental illness and particularly substance use problems and intervene early, if you can keep people in the workforce and provide them with accommodation, you can actually mitigate against a lot of the problems caused by mental illness. So that sort of investment, and it's 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 got a number of different terms, it's called justice reinvestment or um, you know, they're, they're public policy decisions which seem different from mental health, but in fact still feed into the factors which um, are associated with it. But the other thing to remember, of course, is that uh, anyone can develop a mental illness. Most of us will have gone to school with people who went on to develop, say, schizophrenia. Around 1% of the population has schizophrenia. You couldn't necessarily predict which of the people you went to school with would, would develop schizophrenia. So that's what that really shows is that um, anyone is at risk and we just need to reflect as a humane society on the fact that uh, some people don't win the lottery and some people get the, the, the wrong genetic mix. They're born into a family that, uh, that doesn't support them. Their childhood and, and life experiences lead them towards mental illness, in many cases through no fault of their own. And so part of the response of a humane society is to accept 
that you need to provide opportunities to, I suppose, compensate for that and to return a person as best possible to, uh, to a level of functioning and inclusion in the community. I don't think we've done that particularly well compared to, in many cases, countries which, uh, which have a more communitarian attitude, you know, that, um, that actually accept people back, accept them and are able to um, accommodate and restore some sense of normality to their existence after offending occurring while they're mentally ill. Yeah, it's really interesting um, the issues that you raised. I actually listened to a really fascinating podcast interview yesterday with uh, a, an American academic who's actually saying the US Sex Offenders Register does not work and it was really interesting and what she posed actually made sense so people get on it who really shouldn't be on it and actually the further stigmatisation of people actually is going to you know, there could be more offending. So I thought that was really fascinating and things about housing too, you know, if we don't have enough appropriate housing for people, well, how are they going to be stable? So I think you've raised some really interesting points. Um, Danny, what are the links in the people that you treat and see between mental illness and offending? Well, it's interesting you should talk about um, just the the point of social inclusion because, for instance, we know that... uh, some postcodes have greater links to offending. And if you discharge your mentally ill patients to those postcodes, they're more likely to be involved in offending. Uh, Although the majority of people with schizophrenia won't offend, there is certainly an increased rate of offending um, by people with schizophrenia. So some statistics have demonstrated that, for instance, in New South Wales, 10% of all offending is by people with schizophrenia, although only 1% of the population has schizophrenia. So... There's some sort of association there, and it's probably mediated through a range of um, factors which play into both schizophrenia, but also a range of associated problems, substance use, um, dislocation from education and employment and stable housing. Um, One of the features of schizophrenia is poor insight. So a core feature is that when people are unwell, they don't recognise they're unwell. Other people can see they're unwell and tell them they're unwell, but they won't say that, unlike if you've got a a cold where you know it's pretty clear you've got a cold and you won't say oh what do you mean I don't have a I don't have a runny nose that's that's not that's not true so loss of insight is also associated with poor compliance with medication so if you know that medication is effective but you don't believe you have a mental illness why would you take medication so we we obviously have um, a range of sometimes coercive measures to in, increase the likelihood that people take medication as well as really trying to work on insight and trying to help people to understand, you know, what it, what is needed to to address their their treatment needs. As well as that, we know that uh, that there are a small number of people who really have recurrent offending, which is related to their difficult social circumstances. So, of course, if you have um, schizophrenia and substance use, you, you're going to struggle to uh, perhaps meet your rent. You're going to end up in really crummy accommodation. Um, in that crummy accommodation, you're going to have other peers who have similar problems. There's going to be more access to drugs. People might be more prone to offending because they're surrounded by people for whom offending is a normal way of making ends meet when they're um, in, in straightened circumstances. So those are the sort of things that we have to address. And we address um, to address the link between offending and mental illness. We treat the mental illness, but we also have to address the offending. So we have to look at people's attitudes. We have to give them strategies to um, live more effectively, and that comes back to that that level of social inclusion. If you can't get a job because you have a mental illness, if you can't get accommodation because you have mental illness, 
then all of the, uh, the, the cards, the deck is loaded against you and you're perhaps more likely to go into uh, offending. When we treat people at Thomas Embling Hospital, some of those people have come from the prison system and they've got a recurrent offending history and a mental illness, so they, they rotate backwards and forwards between crummy accommodation, prison and mental health settings. Um, and for those people often, you know, we, we're looking at opportunities to provide sustained treatment and to link them into the systems in the community that mean that they're less likely to offend because they're compliant with treatment and some of their other needs are being met by, by services. Uh, for the other population who come as forensic patients, as I say, uh, it's after the offence, so we're, we're coming in late. What we then need to do is look at what we can do to ensure that re-offending is, is markedly reduced in, in likelihood. And we do that through a range of different treatments geared towards not just the mental illness, but also offending behaviours and attitudes, as well as providing people with the skills and resources to return to a meaningful life in the community. And we call that recovery. So recovery involves people working out what they value and we help them to try and get back to the sort of life that they would like to have, recognising that that might not be, um, that opportunities might be limited by, by their mental illness. It appears we Victorians are allowed out again, so we're taking full advantage of it to do live shows. Not only are we at the Karolika Theatre and the Yarraville Club with legendary homicide detective Roland Legg, but we've joined the roster of the Melbourne Podcast Festival too. That's on at the Jam Factory Cinema Complex on July 31st. We're going to be talking forensics in that show and we're using the very big screen to take you behind the scenes into the world of post-mortem examination. I'm going to introduce you to some of the people featured in my new book, CSI Told You Lies, which you can pre-order now. You can book tickets to the Melbourne Podcast Festival and you can book tickets to Talk Homicide with Roland Legg through our Facebook page. Of course, there's links to all of those things in the show notes. I guess there's no typical day in Thomas Embling, but how do you prepare someone who's really unwell, who's been really unwell, and they are dangerous, like they are dangerous to the public and others? How do you treat them and prepare them for life potentially back in the community? It's a, it's a good observation, uh, Emily, because we know that uh, you know people are put in prison um, as punishment, not for punishment. So the days of uh, you know whipping people, I think the last person was whipped in uh, in Victoria in the 1950s by order of the court. Um, it's not permitted anymore. Yeah, the, the the punishment is your um, your detention and your your removal from the community. Um, but but we also know that treating people harshly does does very little. Um, you know, beating beating children doesn't actually stop them from misbehaving. Um, replacing uh, replacing beatings with incentives for good behaviour is much more effective in terms of behavioural change. Um, it's not all touchy feely. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's a it's a place in which you have to go through security perimeter to um, to get in. It's got a high fence around it. Um, your unit is locked overnight. You can't uh, you can't decide that you just want to go to the pub or uh, go for a drive or visit some friends. You, all of your um, liberties are restricted and decisions such as leave are made by an independent body, the forensic leave panel. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of restrictions there. But in terms of um, it's, it's a humane environment, people have their own bedrooms with an ensuite. Um, they'll have, um, particularly as they move towards rehabilitation units, increasing numbers of possessions and, you know, increasingly that's their home. So it looks like just anyone else's bedroom with posters on the wall and a, a stereo and a, you know, a shoe collection or your, your, uh, your clothes. It's certainly not, um, it's certainly not um, austere and, and bluestone. 
But in terms of what's actually happening, um, the the multidisciplinary team, and that's you know that's a combination of psychiatrists, nurses, social workers, psychologists, occupational therapists, all work together to develop an individualised treatment plan for people. Um, and then depending on how mentally well they are, obviously we need to provide medication to address the symptoms of mental illness, but we also need to provide psychological interventions to address personality vulnerabilities or personality difficulties. Um, many people have don't have basic living skills. They don't know how to cook for themselves or um, how to manage their own health or medication. So a lot of it is really geared towards developing functional independence in someone or while they're living in a secure setting. Um, many people have poor physical health, often through substance use, so we have to address that as well. We have visiting GPs and, uh, and when necessary, people you know, go to a general hospital for their health needs. And over a period of time, we hope to get people to a situation in which they're able to look after their own health and mental health. They're able to take medication or even if they don't wish to take it, they will still comply with it under a court order. But we also want people to understand how it is that they got into a situation of offending and to accept responsibility for it, to work out strategies to ensure that it's not likely to happen again um, and to address the, the causal factors. And if you can't do that, so for instance, if, if you insist on your right to smoke cannabis, despite the fact that when you were smoking cannabis, you were mentally ill and you offended, um, you won't get out and stay out because you'll be subject to urine drug screening. Um, if you take cannabis, you'll return to, to the hospital. When we return people to the community, we do so in a graded, um, contained way. So people initially start with escorted leave with a couple of staff. They have to really be stable in mental state. They have to behave well in public. They have to meet those um, their treatment goals. And over time, you reduce the number of people who escort them and so long as a person continues to comply with their leave plan, return on time, not use substances, not misbehave, over time, over some years, people will gradually be able to enter the community themselves. So some of our patients will go out and they'll have jobs, they'll drive cars, but they're living in a secure forensic hospital. When they can satisfy the court that they can be released into the community without posing a risk of seriously endangering other people, at that stage they can then move into um, living in the community, but still subject to supervision and a court order, still mandated to comply with medication or what other conditions there are, until eventually they've been living in the community for a, a significant period of time safely, and they can then satisfy the court that they can come off that order. So it's it's a cautious step. If you compare that, the equivalent with, uh, with a person serving a prison sentence is parole or probation. So a period of time during which you're technically serving a prison sentence, but you're permitted to live in the community with some conditions. And if you comply with those conditions, you can remain living in the community, but if you breach them, you return to prison. And we know that that's an effective way of, firstly, ensuring that the, the state and other services provide input, which assists a person to return to the community, rather than simply opening the door, shoving them out with their possessions and, you know, um, wishing them luck. So we think that that, um, that seems to be effective. The research that we've done on the population discharge from Thomas Embling Hospital shows very low rates of reoffending, and most of that reoffending is very minor. Um, and compared to the population in prisons, which cycle through, return to the community, and then reoffend, um, it's a much, much improved rate. Now, of course, it's more expensive, um, and it relies upon people 
um, having the mental illness which satisfies, you know, that gets them through the door in the first place. We also know that um, we're often playing catch-up. Uh, the Royal Commission into Victoria's Mental Health Services demonstrated very clearly that there have been years and years of under-resourcing. Mental health is not a, it's not a political vote winner, so compared to flash buildings, uh, children's hospitals and cancer services and a range of other services that, that look flashier, mental health is the poor cousin. And what that means is that people have struggled to firstly um, have sustained treatment, to have treatment which follows them, to have treatment which provides that extensive range of wraparound services that people need. But increasingly, I think if you do a, a whole of government equation, you realise that it is actually cheaper than putting people into situations where they're dependent on welfare, um, their offending causes problems for the community and other expense and, and you know, really it's, it's just not what we want for our community. So that investment in rehabilitation for the people coming through Thomas Emling Hospital we think is really effective. I mean, we've seen the absolutely devastating failures, failures in the parole system where, you know, people have been out and offended in the most serious way and it's just raised the absolute rage of the public and the government. So with this process of monitoring um, your patients and the community, I'm imagining it's fairly rigorous. I mean, uh, it, there's no real chance to kind of slip through the net and, you know, offend in a really dramatic way again. Look, it's it's as rigorous as it can be. You, you, you obviously... Um, it's not a one or zero equation, Emily. You really have to, to grade it. So it starts off very rigorous, but over time it, it reduces in intensity. And that's because um, you really have to test people. You have to give them the opportunity um, to fail in order to um, firstly determine that they won't and secondly to ensure that if they fail, they fail in a way that isn't associated with offending. So to give you an example, uh, someone initially coming out will come out and they'll be visited at home a day, you know, perhaps once or twice a day um, their medication will be supervised. Um, we'll make sure they're on injected medication or medication that you can monitor with a blood test. But, you know, there, there are still ways that people can get around that. You'll have people on urine drug screening to check for substance use. Um, but, of course, people have developed ways to get around that. They can, uh, there's a range of different strategies. But, of course, if we find that someone is intoxicated or um, has cheated on the drug test, then we have to work out, do we return a person to hospital? Do we take that as a therapeutic opportunity to work with the person to boost their strategies? We know that you know addictions are relapsing and remitting conditions, so we have to we we have to individualise that treatment, and you can monitor a person incredibly closely, and you can keep doing that indefinitely, but it's very resource intensive. And at the end of the day, you're infantilising a person. You're not giving them an opportunity to develop the skills because um, they're institutionalised. They're being supported by a system which doesn't permit them. Um, to, to be put into situations where they have to manage those challenges. So each, each patient's trajectory is really determined by their level of insight, their level of motivation, their level of compliance, uh, and the level of risk that they pose. And as I said, there are some people who we would simply consider too unpredictable and too risky that they would, they would not receive that leave. Danny, I'm thinking of some of the really heartbreaking cases we've heard about where someone has been really unwell and they've actually murdered a family member. There's been some very high profile cases. Now, can you talk to, a bit to how the process goes with treating them for one thing? And then obviously when they get better, if they get better, then they've also got the additional 
challenge of facing up to what they did and then the family kind of either wrapping themselves around that person or otherwise, I'm not sure. I guess each case is different. So I imagine you do see some of those cases at Thomas Embling. Oh, absolutely. And and it's a very complex situation. I'm sure you'll be aware, you know, all, all families are complicated. Um, all families have various um, problematic relationships for all sorts of reasons. Um, but obviously, for a person with a severe mental illness, their family is often a very important part of the care and support that they require. Um, and paradoxically, that also places them at increased risk of, of being the victims of violence from a person who is mentally ill. So we certainly have significant numbers of patients who have killed or seriously injured family members. And um, it's very challenging for families to work out what to do. In some cases, that just tears the family asunder and they have no further contact with that person. In some situations, there are family members who, um, who provide some ongoing support um, and other family members who don't, so it creates you know, um, ructions and, and rifts within families. And in some cases, you know, families are incredibly um, powerful in their ability to, to manage that situation. This is particularly when a child has killed one of their parents and the other parent is still supporting that child. So we work with, uh, we work with Bouvery Family uh, Therapy Centre so that we provide some input into the family, some psychological support and some assistance to help them come to terms with what has happened. Um, our social workers in particular are a really critical part of keeping people linked to their family and supporting family members to come to terms with what's happened and to work out how they're going to approach it. We can, we can obviously provide advice and support, but we can't tell people what to do um, in terms of, of continuing to support or not support their family member. For the person concerned, for the, the person who's offended, um, we know that at the stage at which they develop insight, insight into what's happened, um, that can be a very difficult, difficult stage for a person. There's certainly a phenomenon of um, post-psychotic depression when people realise what's happened while they've been psychotic, and it can be very, very difficult to come to terms with. Um, some people cope with that by thinking of it as, as that was like a different person, that was psychotic me, that, that's not the authentic me, this is not the person that I am. Um, but, but obviously part of the goal of recovery and of rehabilitation is um, helping a person to come to grips with what's happened, not by ignoring it, not by acting as if it didn't happen and carrying on, but by making some form of sense of what's happened, um, integrating it into themselves, developing strategies you know, that, that I suppose compensate for it in the sense that they reduce the likelihood that it will happen again. Um, but, but our patients will tell you very poignantly of um, the distress and sadness and um, regret that they feel and remorse in many cases for, for what's happened while they've been unwell. Um, and they recognise that in many cases there's, there's nothing they can do to undo the harm to another person. Um, mm. So I think that's a very challenging goal. And, uh, and for some people, um, it's, it's a goal that you know, really um, breaks down the very foundations of who they are. But it's an important part of what we do. It's certainly not just a matter of um, treating a person with medication so they say, yes, I have a mental illness and I need to take medication. We also have to treat the offending behaviour and we really have to focus on that as a um, specific forensic goal. That's the difference between a forensic mental health service and a general mental health service. Um, and for people who um, really can't take into account their offending or who won't accept, for instance, the role of substance use and, and continue to, to pose that risk, then that's going to really impair their ability to return safely to the community. Yeah, I was going to ask you the question, Danny, is there 
any cases or people who were just too unwell or too dangerous in terms of, you know, their mental health might get treated, but I don't know, this is my, you know, pop psychology, uh, you know, <laughs> assessment. I'm like a sociopath or something. Like are there people who just will never get out because they are just literally too dangerous? Uh, I've, I've been simplistic in simply talking about mental illness, but of course uh, the people that we deal with have a range of complex disorders and they often have multiple diagnoses. Um, so we certainly know that in addition to mental illness, uh, and we, we face the challenges of dealing with substance use and also personality disorders. So those things can all coexist in a person. When we deal with mental illness, we're predominantly dealing with schizophrenia. So other, other forms of um, mental disorder are much less commonly associated with violent offending. Um, and, you know, treatments for, for psychotic illness like schizophrenia are improved, but they're not perfect. And the population we deal with often have what's defined as treatment-resistant schizophrenia. That is, their symptoms have not fully resolved with treatment. Uh, and even with you know persistent treatment, often with combinations of medications or at higher than usual doses, they still remain a little symptomatic, even though they might not be as disturbed or aggressive as they were previously. Um, but but the complicating factor comes with issues like personality disorder. So if your personality is also um, problematic and you're prone to, for instance, resolving problems with violence or you're um, particularly prone to suspicion and taking people um, as um, hostile and working towards you, then, then you face some, some specific challenges in interacting with other people safely in the community. If, if we can't get people to a position where we feel that, um, that a court would be satisfied that, they, um, that they're able to return to the community without that risk of serious endangerment, then, then there's more work to be done. And in some cases, we certainly have um, a handful of people whose ability to progress through the hospital and return to the community is really constrained by either their um, persistent risk of substance abuse and they relapse into that, and with that, a, a deterioration in their mental state, um, poor insight and, and reluctance to continue taking medication, or the complexities of their personality, which really prevent them from, I suppose, accepting their situation and working effectively with the team to, to improve. Danny, is there more of a need for these services because of the way society is or have, have these things always happened and it's just that obviously the services weren't as good, there wasn't the acknowledgement, there was the stigma, you know, the treatment wasn't as good? What, what, are you, what kind of trends are you seeing at the moment? Well, we're, we're in the very fortunate situation that the state government has um, recently agreed to fund um, forensic care um, to the extent of $350 million to extend Thomas Embling Hospital. That, that reflects many years of underfunding which preceded that and was accepted by the government that there is a need. Um, that was something we've been saying for some time. And that will enable us to provide, firstly, more beds in the hospital, uh, but, but secondly, beds that can specifically cater to populations like women, um, you know, and treat, treat women in single-sex units that take into account the differences in their mental disorder and the differences in the way in which... Um, they have had life experiences which have led them to, a, to an offence um, and also to cater for some of the older people. Um, the hospital was built without thinking, I think, about the, um, the effects of ageing. We certainly have numbers of elderly people who, um, you know, who have specific physical health needs or some cognitive impairment. Um, we need a slightly different work, workforce for that and we need a different built environment to make sure that that's safe and humane. And... Um, 
yes, so there is a, there is a greater need, but but as I said as well, um, the, the need is is upstream and downstream. So the need is firstly for greater general mental health services in the community, not just forensic services, but services that means that that people can get treatment, um, can find the treatment um, welcoming and receptive to their needs. Um, you know, mental health units can be very unpleasant places and, and if they're underfunded, they're even more unpleasant. So certainly the Royal Commission um, made a number of findings which reflected the fact that people's experiences of the mental health system can be really, really difficult, not just the, uh, the patients, but also their family and carers. Difficulty getting treatment when they need it, difficulty getting treatment that doesn't have to be provided compulsorily and in hospital, difficulty in getting treatment for specific forms of mental disorder. So we know that if we have more effective joined up treatment in the community, then we'll be able to reduce the likelihood that mentally disordered offenders end up in Thomas Henley Hospital. Like, like all um, places of detention, you know, we would like to do away with ourselves so that people weren't detained, but I don't think that's likely in the future. Um, in terms of, of that sort of joined up treatment, um, at the moment, in many cases, even though you have a severe chronic mental illness, which is likely to affect you for you know um, your um, future, it's still treated episodically. So many people are discharged back to their GPs, they're discharged off treatment, and they're really only treated um, acutely and compulsorily when their behaviour is very disturbed. I mean, that's sort of like treating every episode of um, you know high blood sugar as a uh, um, as a specific problem, rather than saying, well, this person's got diabetes, so they actually need chronic long-term treatment. So that's an important part of it. And finally, as I said earlier, there's a range of um, corollaries, there's a range of other interventions which aren't just about mental health but actually go towards providing better mental health and wellbeing. And that, that includes efforts at retaining children who are struggling in the education system, efforts in providing employment, efforts in making sure that there's adequate social housing for people, that they're not um, increasingly sort of homeless or, or living in substandard accommodation. And, and the range of sort of social services that could reduce the likelihood that people end up offending. And finally, of course, um, I've, I keep coming back to substance use because it's such a um, frequent accompaniment to the sorts of um, conditions that get people into Thomas Embling Hospital and into the services of forensic care. Um, access to effective substance use treatments, you know, and, and that's everything from policing to prevent drugs getting onto the, uh, onto the streets, but also providing access to treatments that might reduce the likelihood that a mentally um, ill person is also affected by substance use. So there's, there's a lot of things there. Um, I think increasingly the government recognises this, um, both in the funding of, um, of the mental health system, which has come out of the Royal Commission and is very welcome, um, but you know, it's, it's going to be a huge growth area. We're, we're really um, stressed at the, uh, at the level of workforce investment that's going to be needed and the number of um, staff that we'll need to provide really effective mental health system across um, across Victoria. And I mean, we've spoken a lot about how individuals are treated, but the safety of the community is obviously as equal with that, isn't it, Danny? Oh, absolutely. And of course, you know, one, one of the paradoxes is that uh, a, a place like Thomas Embling Hospital separates people from the community. But of course, we have to be part of the community. Uh, this is all about inclusion. Uh, it's not about a, a them and us, it's, it's an us and us. Um, Pat McGorry from Origin, you know, continues to make the talks about sort of the one in five and the um, the the likelihood that that any person can experience mental ill health during their life. And I think it's important that we reflect that um, the 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 way to reduce mentally disordered offending is through inclusion and through 
a range of strategies that don't expel people from the community and lock them behind high walls, but offer them opportunities that mean that they can either not get there in the first place or return from there and have a, have a good life in the community, which can feel secure that the likelihood of them offending is really low. This is all very challenging and I imagine quite pressurised work. So what keeps you in this field, Danny? Like what keeps you passionate? What keeps you, you know, just going on? Because I imagine, you know, you could burn out pretty easily in this kind of work. Well, it's fascinating. Again, the the staff that I work with um, are always a delight. Um, It's it's a fantastic reflection that, that people have chosen to work with very challenging populations um, so, you know, it, it's difficult work. It's not necessarily, it's not like uh, doing an operation and seeing an immediate result from your um, your um, intervention. It can take many years to sort of see the benefit. Um, but, but I certainly know that um, when I talk to the staff that I work with, um, everyone's really enthusiastic about working with the population. Um, they want to see people do well. Most most people who work in mental health are people people. They, they want to work with people. Um, Forensic psychiatry in particular, you know, it's always, there's an element of excitement and challenge because you're dealing with um, high profile cases and you're dealing with, um, you know, a high stakes game in a situation. So the community entrusts you with, uh, with ensuring that you make decisions that reduce the likelihood of further offending. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a responsibility. Um, it's, it's intellectually challenging work. It involves working with people, but also uh, working with people whose illnesses are, are complex and don't just respond to straightforward treatments. So there's always that level of challenge. Um, and it's also surprisingly, it's teamwork. You work with a lot of different people. You work with the legal system. You work with a range of other um, disciplines. Um, and, and that itself is very satisfying in terms of uh, formulating um, a way forward. But but the patients themselves are, are very interesting challenging, fascinating, and, um, and when they do really well, when you see a, a good outcome, um, it, it's, it's really satisfying to be able to think that you've been able to help someone turn their life around and, and make it very different. And some of our patients talk very poignantly about that. They talk about how sad they are that it, they had to commit an offence in order to get good quality treatment. Um, they talk with regret about some of the life choices that they made and how they just didn't perceive where that would lead. Um, and they obviously appreciate the opportunity to rebuild themselves and to, to return to the community and to, to live a good life. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Danny Sullivan. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in this episode, you can phone Lifeline on 131114 or go online to lifeline.org.au. We also have information about forensic care in our show notes. Thanks for listening. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.